I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Samira Moyadin. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, home is where the herd is. A survivor of the Hamas attacks tells us what it was like to go back to her home, her kibbutz, for the first time since October 7th. This is your brain on lockdown. A neuroscientist tells us about the alarming change she saw in teenagers' brains after the pandemic, a change that may not come as such a surprise for parents. He struck a lot of false notes. George Santos's time as a U.S. congressman may be coming to an end now. We hear from the publisher of the local paper that first broke the story of his tenuous relationship with the truth. Riding the rail, a BC University student and skier says he knew the moment he first saw it that a particular handrail on campus would be a dream to ride. And now he's found a way to do it without getting booted off by security. Possession may be nine-tenths of the law, but it still took the punctuation-minded residents a year to get their village to reinstate the possessive apostrophe on a street sign for St. Mary's Terrace. And for Andre 3000, it's time to play the piper. The hip-hop legend takes an unexpected artistic leap in his debut solo album of ambient flute music. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that flautists expectations. Today was a homecoming of sorts for Shaban Rahamim, although there was nothing joyful in her return to the kibbutz Nahal Oz in southern Israel. She was accompanied by soldiers and could only see her home for a short time before leaving again. Since the Hamas attacks on October 7th, the 500 residents have been trying to make a life outside the kibbutz while grieving dozens of their friends and neighbors who were either killed or taken hostage by Hamas. On October 9th, we spoke to Siobhan Rahamim. Here's a clip from that interview. Just this afternoon, I realized what we went through. I'm sitting here looking at all my family, and I just realized that in one way I'm blessed that I'm with my family and they're all with me together and that we're all safe because it was horrific. It was horrific. I never, never in my worst dreams imagined that something could happen. I've only been able to, you know, think what, what we went through yesterday. And I thank God that I'm safe. And I keep saying that to my children. We just have to be thankful that we're safe and that we're together. We reach Shavon Rahamim again today in Mishmar Hahamek, Israel. Shavon, I'm glad that you and your family uh, are safe. But as you hear that, uh, are the emotions as raw for you now uh, as they were on that day? Well, to be quite honest with you, yes, because uh, only now, this past week, we have been going to the memorials after mm-hmm. the 30 days of uh, many of the families that we knew from our kibbutz who were slaughtered on that day. 
and uh, we we were at the memorial, so it always brought the memory back again. So it's just like after we our wounds were trying to settle, then they reopened. You were able to to go back to the kibbutz to go home briefly today, Siobhan. What was that like for you? Our kibbutz seemed okay. <laughs> I wasn't in any of the houses that were uh, were under attack, and also the, there are have also been some uh, houses destroyed by the rockets and uh, motors. So there's a lot of damage there. Uh, wind, you know, windows broken and uh, pictures that had fallen from the, from the, you know, the rockets, from the shaking of the houses. Mm. And, uh, but apart from that, the kibbutz, the area where I live, it looks okay. You know, it's like saying, okay, so let's just clean the house and get back inside. Yeah. <laughs> but Is it that easy Then though? you hear all mm-hmm. the, yeah, it's not that easy. Then we hear all the rockets from, from, from our side shooting in Gaza. And you can see there's just a black cloud over Gaza of smoke. And um, it will take time. We just have to be thankful that we're all safe. Did it feel like home still to be there? You know, we met with, we we were several families that went back to the houses mm-hmm. and, and several of us have said, you know, it seems so strange. It's like, you know, okay, why do we have to leave again? But, you know, it's a reality, you know, there's something that we have to face and it's going to take a while before we can go back. But many of the families do want to go back and, mm-hmm. and we will grow strong and we're not going to oh. give up. You were able to take a few things from home yeah. apart from the essentials yeah. what was important for you to to hang on to to take back with you well we took photos and uh, you know albums and uh, although you have many of them on the cloud and the computer but you know like old photos of the kids when they were young and photo albums of the weddings of our children grandchildren photos and uh, blankets <laughs> for the winter and winter clothes and shoes. And How are your grandchildren doing? We spoke about them in our last conversation about five weeks ago. How are well, they they're doing? all very, they're very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, only the middle one, he, the first few days he kept on asking me, he's three and a half years old, he kept on asking me, why can't we go back to your house, mm-hmm. Grandma? Why can't we go there and play with the toys there? I said, well, we can't go back now because we're in a new we're in a new kibbutz, but we'll go back soon. And he hasn't he hasn't asked us since. And the oldest one, he's six. He's quite happy here. He's got new friends, and uh, I think the children adjust very easily, especially at that age. Mm-hmm. I think the older the the youth, they're having a hard time. Because they're not, you know, with the rest of their schoolmates and uh, they haven't got the, you know, it's not in their head to study any time. So especially under these times, they just, you know, I think they're they're a bit lost. And I'm thankful that I haven't got children that age because it's very difficult to, you know, to keep them occupied and not to get into trouble. It's hard enough for adults to process what what's happened yeah, and is exactly. happening, let alone um, younger people. Yeah, you mentioned yeah. the the rock of fire into Gaza and the smoke that you're seeing. You're you're going through the grieving process and these these memorials, as you said. But at the same time, I'm wondering if you're also thinking about the response so far from from the Israeli government. And I wondered how you're you're feeling about what's happening. Oh, the response from the Israeli government is 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 a disaster. I mean, they they just have 
they've not taken any responsibility whatsoever and uh, and I blame them I blame them for this I really do Why? I think if they, they 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 because they were they were they were just ignoring the whole situation there were so many warnings there were so many red lights and they said, oh, no 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 everything's okay and and we believed in them and I, I you know they've let us down I have no trust in them whatsoever at the end of our last conversation, I thought about it a lot. You asked us to spread the message and make sure the world knew what had happened and what was happening to you. Do you feel that the world is listening? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And we won't give up. We won't give up. And uh, there are so many, you know, so many groups of people, youth, and so many grown-ups that we're they're demonstrating all the time. And from many other countries, too. We have many support from other families in, in many other countries. I know you said you'd never, you'll never give up and, you know, you and your neighbors want to go back to Kibbutz Nahalaz. When do you think that might happen? Uh, I hope that uh, beginning of next year. But uh, I think it will take at least another half a year, if not a year. I just hope it will be as soon as possible. Siobhan, thank you for your time. Okay, you're welcome. Take care. And you too. Bye-bye. We reach Siobhan Rahamim in Mishmar Hamek, Israel. George Santos said he was a college volleyball star who went on to manage millions for Goldman Sachs and run an animal charity in his spare time. He claimed his grandparents survived the Holocaust, that his mother died in the World Trade Center attacks, and that he survived an assassination attempt. He also said he produced the Broadway musical version of Spider-Man and appeared on the TV show Hannah Montana. None of these things are true. And there's so much more. Yesterday, the House Committee on Ethics released its report on Santos, who already faces criminal charges, including fraud, money laundering, and theft of public funds. The new report documents tens of thousands of dollars in donations spent on Botox, luxury goods, and OnlyFans. Long Island newspaper The North Shore Leader was the first to raise the alarm about Santos, but their reporting was not picked up by the national media until well after Mr. Santos took office. Grant Lawley is the publisher of the paper and a former Republican candidate for the congressional seat later won by George Santos. We reached him in Long Island, New York. As you may have heard, Grant, or seen, the head of the Ethics Committee introduced a new measure— to expel George Santos from Congress. So this is this is the third time by our count that his colleagues uh, are going to vote on, on whether to kick him out. What is your prediction at this stage? Has he run out of chances? I think he's gone. Uh, I think, you know, the third time will be a charm, and I do think they're going to vote to expel him uh, when the vote is held uh, in, a, in a week and a half. Santos, as I understand it, asked to meet you when he first ran back in 2020. You were running a newspaper uh, and, and, and ran for the same congressional seat. W- what did you make of him the first time you met him? 
I mean, he was a real weirdo when I first met him. I mean, he... Uh, <laughs> I mean, How do you really feel? Uh, no, I mean, he was just, he was a strange guy. I didn't consider him to be a very serious candidate. Um, he sort of sat back, twiddling his thumbs and giggling, and he seemed to be basking in the attention he was getting. Um, and, you know, I asked him about different policy issues and where he stood and some of the political issues. And, I mean, he clearly didn't know what he was doing or talking about. And... Um, uh, you know, it, it 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 just presented me as some guy who was doing this as a vanity trip, but who wasn't really serious about running for office or about public policy. He wrote in a tweet yesterday uh, that, quote, public service life was never a goal or a dream, but I stepped up to the occasion when I felt my country needed it most, end quote. What do you think drove George Santos to run? I, I think what enticed George Santos to run was... Uh, that he was a he was a petty criminal living in Queens County, and when uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was elected to the U.S. Congress in 2016, uh, suddenly a huge a huge amount of national money poured into the campaigns of the no win Republican candidates running against her, millions of dollars, and I think he saw that and said, "Wow, you know these people are getting millions of dollars." And why can't I do that, too? And I really think that's what drew him and attracted him to the political process. What do you think it says about that process, though, that he was able to to say all of these things <laughs> that weren't necessarily true? I, I think it speaks to a, a real crisis in democracy, not just in the U.S., but across the West, which is that um, if someone is a is a liar, a persistent liar, a pathological liar, or a huckster, um, they get away with it most of the time uh, because there's so little actual scrutiny on on people who are elected to office, and also because the the, the money that's involved in the process is extremely enticing to people who are basically criminals and are really interested in in the vanity and the the money involved in the process. The North Shore leader was reporting on this or raising these questions about George Santos long before the the bigger news outlets, the national news outlets, were, were picking up on this. So I'm wondering how you're feeling now that, that this case and his situation is at the point that it is when you were, were leading the coverage. It's a real vindication for the North Shore leader and for our writers and our reporters to see um, that a story that we broke nationally, internationally, um, has now, um, you know, has now resulted in, in, in him being exposed and, and now him being expelled from Congress and, frankly, him being arrested and prosecuted for some of the many of the crimes that he committed while he was running for office. Um, but it looks the, the bigger problem and that I see it, and that's in the ecosystem of the media, and that is that um, when stories are, are broken by different media organs, particularly by local media organs, um, the national media is not connected to that, and they don't pick it up. And w- that connectedness that used to exist, um, ironically, doesn't, doesn't anymore. We, we, broke the, we broke the George Santos story, but we also broke a lot of other local stories. I mean, the, the, the girlfriend of Samuel Bankman-Fried's uh, partner, at FTX, mm-hmm. ran his girlfriend for Congress out here on Long Island, and it was a totally fraudulent race. Uh, they put five million dollars of stolen crypto money into the into the primary. Uh, she ended up losing the primary, 
But that was a major story as well, and nobody's really picked up on that. Uh, there's a local fraudster named Joshua Lafazan who's been who's been grifting off of pretending to be the opponent of George Santos, and he's raised millions of dollars, uh, including seven hundred thousand from Samuel Bankman Fried, and that's been a big local story, and we've broken a lot of that. But that also wasn't been picked up by the national media. So you know, it's a continuing problem. It's not just you know George Santos. I mean, he's the the miner's canary, if you will. Um, that's that shows there's a problem, but there's there's a deeper problem. Hey, I'm just thinking back how you describe your first meeting with him and getting a bad vibe really quickly. All of the people that he would have encountered as he made these attempts to run and filed papers and talked to people, campaign people. I'm sure they have instincts as well <laughs> and are smart people. So why do you think that they would not pick up on that or not pursue that or not say, you're, maybe you're not the, the right guy? Well, they did, many of them. But he also attracted a lot of liars and grifters uh, who were attracted to his sort of politics. And several of them have already pled guilty and are now facing federal prison time in the United States because they were they were con artists and grifters, and they found a, a fellow uh, a fellow traveler to work with. What do you think the future holds for George Santos now? I think George Santos is going to give a an interview uh, from from a hotel balcony in Rio de Janeiro <laughs> in in two weeks after they've expelled him yeah, because he is a Brazilian national, and there's no extradition from Brazil to the United States. We'll see if your we'll see if your prediction. Uh Comes true. Grant, thank you. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Grant Lolly is the publisher of the North Shore Leader. We reached him in Long Island, New York. Students on Thompson River University's campus in Kamloops, British Columbia, might get excited about the thought of learning, or meeting new friends, or getting away from their parents for a bit. For Justin Tarasoff, what gets him excited on campus is a blue handrail that cuts through the middle of a set of outdoor stairs, so much so that he's helped organize an entire event dedicated to this handrail. It's called Rail Riot, and it's taking place tonight. We caught up with him beforehand at the handrail. Uh, Justin, you know that that people don't usually get this excited about handrails, right? Yeah, no, people don't usually get excited, but there's a <laughs> there's a certain group of people that do get really excited over these handrails. But yeah. most of them are, you know, skateboarders, skiers, snowboarders, yeah. action sports type people. You you are their leader. Yeah, I'm the student lead on this one for sure. <laughs> do you remember the first time you saw this particular handrail? Yeah, it was on my onboarding three years ago. So I guess in 2020, I was walking, doing my campus tour, and I, we walked past this handrail, and I was like, oh, that would be a great, great rail to ski on. <laughs> uh, the next year, yeah. I went to try to ride on it, and I got kicked out multiple times by security because <laughs> they just, you know, they don't they don't allow it on campus. Yeah, you knew that that was a uh, possibility. Yeah, no, I, I knew that was going to happen. I was just hoping I could uh, ski it and be done with it quick enough that they wouldn't have time to kick me out. But unfortunately, that never happened. So I went to my teacher, Billy Collins, and I was like, hey, how can I hit this thing 
without getting kicked out. Like, how can I have permission to actually do this? <laughs> and the best way was to do rail ride and host an actual event on it. And yeah. So you're you're looking at it right now. You're standing beside it. What makes it so special? Describe the shape for our listeners. I think it's set up on a nine flat nine. So for the folks that don't skateboard or ski or do this type of thing. So there's nine stairs going down and then there's a flat part and then there's another nine stairs. Uh, there's a handrail in the middle of it and the handrail follows the shape of the stairs. So mm-hmm. down, flat, and then down. So skiers or snowboarders call that a down, flat, down or a DFD. There's and a kink in it, is, I heard. That's another way you describe it. Yeah, yeah. The transition from a flat to a down or a, or a down to a flat, that would be called a kink. So mm-hmm. if the rail changes angles, that is a kink. And this one actually has two of them on it. Does that make it extra special, the double? Yeah, yeah, it's a double king, so it makes it extra hard. But it also has a little bit of a curve. If you're looking, if your ski is right, looking at the top of the rail, it curves to the left a little bit, making it harder to stay on because it doesn't shoot you straight. What does it feel like to be on it? It's pretty crazy. I mean, you get on it and you get off pretty fast because you got speed going into it. Um, you have a little bit of friction in your feet. You can kind of feel the metal grinding on, on metal. And um, it's kind of scary. I'm not going to lie. You get onto it and you're like, oh, I hope I can make it to the end without uh, injuring myself. But you still do it. <laughs> oh, I still do it. Absolutely. It's, it's for the thrill of it. I, I love it. So, Justin, can anyone just show up and ride this rail at tonight's event? Um, unfortunately not, because the difficulty of this, it's a pretty big liability. So we actually have a selected group of athletes. I think it's about 24 or 25. Um, half skiers, half snowboarders, and I have uh, hand-picked them myself, as well, <laughs> as well with a couple coaches, like ski coaches uh, up at Sun Peaks, my local ski hill. Yeah. So we have uh, we've vetted these athletes. We know they're good enough to ride this thing. And yeah, please don't show up with your skis or snowboards. You want to make sure no one breaks their arm or something else by the end of this. Awkward. Yeah, exactly. We're trying to keep it as safe as possible. We have uh, we have the stairs covered in snow, so it actually kind of looks like a ski slope. Hmm. It's going to happen yeah. uh, as we as our show goes to air this evening. Uh, so we'll see how this first uh, first installment of Rail Riot goes. Justin, you know, are you going to get to ride the handrail tonight, or is it just full organizer mode for you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to ride it. Um, that was that was my main goal of actually doing Rail yeah. Riot. Is I wanted to hit this thing without getting kicked out. <laughs> so I plan on doing some organizing. Yeah as well as getting a couple hits on it myself. But do you have a leg up on the other folks? Because you've ridden this rail a few times, as you said, before you know you got in trouble. Are these folks that you handpicked, are they riding it for the first time, or have they tested it out or practiced on it? Well, some of them are local athletes, so some of them have definitely ridden this thing before, yeah. and some of them are coming from out of the province. We have some people coming from Alberta. We even have some people coming from Saskatchewan. Um so, yeah, I would say I maybe have a little bit of a leg up because I know exactly how it's set up. I've been looking at it for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I'd say a little bit. Do you feel like you're building a legacy here, that you're becoming a bit of a legend alongside this sand rail? Definitely between my friends. They uh, they definitely think it's legendary because, you know, we finally get to hit it. And I, I made it happen. So, yeah, I would say a little bit for sure. People are kind of coming up to me and they're just like, hey, you're the rail ride guy. And I'm like, yeah, I am. Are you coming? And yeah, a lot of advertising done by that. Yeah. It doesn't have a name. No. Okay. Uh, my my teacher, Billy, was actually thinking we should name it. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. But yeah. we just didn't ever get to a good name. Well, maybe one will uh, come out of the event tonight. Is it a competition, by the way? Is it going to be winners, uh, losers, no. or just fun? So yeah, because of liability, right? We don't want people hurting <laughs> themselves and trying tricks they don't know how to do yet. 
so we're not going to do a competition. We're just kind of going to do a session, more like a demonstration. And then in the future, I could definitely see us making it more of like an event and like, you know, having prizes for the athletes. But we thought it would be a lot cooler to give those prizes to the people, like the spectators. Because the prize, if you're an athlete, the real prize is just getting getting access to hit this thing. So what are the spectators being judged on? What will they win for? Best reaction? Uh, I think we're going to do, yeah, most uh, loudest, most energy. <laughs> if people show up and they're really excited, really loud, making the vibe good, they're going to they're gonna get some stuff for, for sure. You, you've been dealing with your teacher on this. Are you going to get extra credit for this? Uh, well, I've been talking to Billy about that. I'm, I'm really hoping so. Uh, he's been pretty relaxed about, you know, letting me do some late assignments and whatnot just so I have more time to plan this. But so far, he's been pretty good. Okay, we'll see. Justin, good luck today. Thank you. appreciate it. That was Thompson River University tourism management student Justin Tarasoff speaking with us from Kamloops, British Columbia, earlier today. Nobody loves a flute more than as it happens. That's just a given. But even we were a little surprised by the direction rap legend Andre 3000 has taken in his newly dropped debut solo album. Because when you think of Andre 3000, you tend to think of this. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Or maybe you think of this. Or maybe you think of something else. I don't know. I don't know your life. But I do know what you wouldn't be likely to imagine, and that's this. And yet of late, sightings of the Grammy-winning rapper have often included awestruck claims that he was out and about with a new friend, the flute. Just fluting away in a seeming reverie, in press for the new album, Mr. 3000 has said he has in fact tried to make a solo rap album in the years since his former group Outkast disbanded, but he just couldn't. He told GQ, quote, Sometimes it feels inauthentic for me to rap because I don't have anything to talk about in that way. I'm 48 years old. Ouch. I hope Jay-Z isn't listening tonight. And so now the world has New Blue Sun, Andre 3000's rap-free debut solo album, a salubrious swirl of ambient flute music that he describes as pure discovery and excitement, like watching a child see bubbles for the first time. But it's also so much more. It's a testament to artistic integrity, to mid-career reinvention, to defying expectations, and most importantly, to just letting yourself go where the woodwind takes you. Pan 
pandemic-related lockdowns and closures were hard on everyone. But a growing body of research suggests what many parents may already suspect. They were especially hard on young people. Now a new study scanning adolescent brains seems to be backing some of those suspicions. The report was presented at the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience this week, and the research was led by Patricia Kuhl. She's co-director of the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. Professor Kuhl, when you looked at those scans, what did they reveal? What did you see? What we saw in the brains of teenagers aged 9 to 19 was that the measures indicate that their brains are aging faster than is typical in the teenage years. So it's as though the pandemic lockdown caused these kids to more rapidly change in the measures. We're measuring cortical thickness. That's the thickness of the gray matter uh, right at the top of your skull. So you can see that thinning. Yes, yes. I mean, it normally thins with age, but the thinning is way beyond what you would expect uh, on that normative uh, developmental pathway. Mm. And the the effect is huge in females, much larger in females than in males. They all show it, males and females, but females are showing it much more strongly. Why do you think that is? Well, it's not clear yet, but we will find out. It is mm-hmm. discoverable. We have all these measures on the teens. We have their social media use. We have their cognitive abilities tested. We have their sense of well-being. We've done many survey measures to see what they report with regard to their sense of well-being. And if we can link the thinning, particularly in females, to the um, survey results that they give us saying that they're more feeling isolated and more depressed because of the pandemic, then we could draw a link between this rapid aging and stress. Were there other indicators uh, apart from the thinning in those scans themselves? Well, we have hundreds, Mm -hmm. literally, of measures. And this is the first one. And it was so surprising and so dramatic uh, that we we felt we needed to come out with this one to begin with before we can reveal all the rest. But yes. And uh, what's another interesting fact about the data, when you look at the 68 brain areas that we examine, what we see in the female brains is that Everything is affected, both hemispheres, whereas in the boys, we only see effects in the occipital uh, cortex, which is responsible for vision. And so these dramatic differences between the magnitude of the effect, plus it's in specific areas of the male brain. What do you think the consequences could be of this kind of thinning? Well, so I think the, the, the million, multi-million dollar question actually to answer it is what happens next? Is this a permanent shift? So in addition to all the measures I described, we have additional ones where the kids were in a functional brain scanner called magnetoencephalography, and they were trying to learn uh, an artificial grammar, you know, a, a string of letters with words and uh, that kind of resemble words, but they're not words. And we were trying to see how rapidly does the teenage brain learn. So we have the opportunity to see whether the kids who thin the most had most difficulty learning new material. That would be bad news. You know, if if we've affected plasticity, that would be bad news. So we need to find that out. But we might see if there's recovery as their social lives improve, Mm -hmm. if that's the root cause. Maybe they'd thin more slowly. 
you know, and sort of catch up to what's typical if they thinned more slowly. Wanting to release this at this stage while your work is still continuing, you mentioned that was important to you. Why is that? What message did you hope that the folks at the conference well, and, and our listeners yeah, take away? The, the larger message is that our teens are stressed. Our teens are having difficulties. It it was heading that way. The, the demographic data say that our teens were reporting depression and a sense of despair prior to the pandemic. The pandemic exacerbated it as teens only interacted, at least in the United States, they were on screens to learn, to connect with their friends, to have any life at all. They were on screens. And I know from other studies that, that, that kids don't learn from screens. There's learning loss all over the place in the primary and secondary school years uh, in math and reading because the kids were trying to learn on screens. Kids need people and teenagers particularly need their social connections to feel good. Your, your research specifically, you know, looked at, at the lockdown, pandemic lockdown period. So based on right. what you've seen, uh, you know, is your sense that, that teenagers should have been, been out of that lockdown situation or allowed back in their social circles sooner? You know, th- that is just a great question. And, you know, what are you going to do? You're between the rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. You've got a pandemic, especially before there were vaccines, that is so deadly and the, you know, we're now seeing the effects on the brain of long COVID. Now, I'm not measuring, this isn't long COVID. This is the effect of the lockdown. But long COVID is, is bad. So protecting our kids by closing things down, I think, was the right thing to do. When should we have opened up? Should we have insisted on masking? Was masking sufficient? I think it's anybody's guess what the perfect thing to do would have, would have been. Are you worried that, that, those who disagree with lockdowns entirely uh, might use your research, despite what you just said very clearly, might pick and choose from 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 what you've said here or what the research shows so far um, to, to try to um, subvert the calls right. for lockdowns. Well, I would hate for that to happen, but that's the problem. You present your research and you put it out there as veridically, as honestly as you can, and people twist things. I, I don't think anybody should take this as evidence that the lockdown was the wrong thing to do or that the lockdown should have been absolutely a minimal putting our children at risk for long-term health problems. Um, so it, I hope that that doesn't happen, but um, I'm a scientist. Uh, my job in this world is to put the word out there, do the studies as carefully as we can, interpret them as conservatively as we can, and then tell people what we think they mean and hope that they don't twist it. Professor Cool, thank you for coming on the program. You're welcome. Patricia Cool is co-director of the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences at the University of Washington. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. 
Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Some might call it a win for the little guy, or proof that small things can make a big difference. Either way, after 12 long months, apostrophe advocates in one UK village can finally breathe easy. Last fall, a street sign in Twyford, Hampshire, became cause for concern after it was replaced. That's because the new sign was missing one critical component, a possessive apostrophe. Now, after calls to rectify the error, the street finally has a new sign with the original apostrophe reinstated. Oliver Gray was the first to complain about that error and got to give the finishing touch to the new sign. We reached him in Twyford. Oliver, you got to put that apostrophe back in on the St. Mary's Terrace sign. What was that like for you? Well, it was... uh... It was uh, quite emotional. I mustn't exaggerate, but uh, my my kind neighbour gave me a, a a brush that they prepared with some special um, paint that was uh, you know very hard wearing, so that it should be there for another century or so. I hope. <laughs> did you do it in in sort of small uh, strokes, or did you do one one big? Oh no, very very delicate. Now mm-hmm. I, I just uh, I took it uh, I took it very sensitively. <laughs> Why do you think you were given this honour? Well, I was given the honour because I was the sad person who spotted the error in the first place. I wouldn't say <laughs> sad, determined, perhaps. <laughs> well, yes, I don't know. Some people think it's rather a sad thing to be worried about apostrophes, but there you go. <laughs> well, you were the first one to raise the issue, uh, as you said. Yes. Why did you want to do that? Well, I my background is in um, language teaching, so I am a bit of a stickler for grammar. Um, I'm not quite as obsessed about it as as as, as it appears, but <laughs> but uh, I, I do take these things quite seriously. I was walking down our little street in our beautiful little village here in Hampshire, and I noticed that the sign uh, had been removed and replaced by another one, but the vital element of the apostrophe to indicate possession, i.e. the street of St. Mary, was um, missing. This was about a year ago, and it was uh, yeah. It stopped you in your tracks, it sounds like. <laughs> of course, I, I immediately sort of pulled myself up to my full height and puffed out my chest and said, this is unacceptable, <laughs> I must do something about it. So did you um, think initially that there had just been some mistake? I was pretty clear what happened was that the local authorities had decided to replace all the old traditional signs with new ones. And in so doing, they they took away the the old one that had the correct apostrophe and they replaced it with a new one that had no apostrophe. So it was very noticeable to anybody walking past that this change had happened. So all I did initially was I just pointed it out to the neighbours and we had a bit of a laugh about it. But then uh, a little campaign got going whereby they uh, they wanted it to be actually replaced and returned to its original condition. So uh, that's what happened. When when you all raised the issue wow, with village officials, what, what did they say? How did they react? Okay, well, um, I'm not quite sure how it is in Canada, but here there are some various different levels of mm-hmm. local authorities. We have what's called a parish council, which is just a little tiny village here. We have then the local uh, city council, and they are responsible for the road signs. So we mentioned it to the local councillors, 
who said, yes, we agree, we, we, we need this to be rectified. So they then went, and it became quite, quite funny for me, because they went to the, the proper city council, and they had a full-scale debate about it, uh, where they uh, they looked up all the rules and regulations, and they came to the conclusion that, uh, that actually, yes, they should change it and back to how it had been before. So, uh, okay. so that was quite exciting in a way. <laughs> but it still took a year. Yeah, well, it did because the, the wheels grind very slowly in, uh, in in local authorities, I imagine. They had to get – well, the main thing, of course, was, uh, uh, Neil, that they had to uh, find the original one, which had been thrown in the local rubbish dump. Oh, my goodness. And uh, our very um, resourceful local councillor um, – uh, went down to the dump and started rummaging through all the uh, rubbish in there and uh, <laughs> and found the actual original sign. This was at the beginning of the whole okay. procedure, which was about a year ago. And, and then ever since then, they've been uh, uh, working on, uh, well, the, the local people here got it back and they, they had to, in their spare time, renovate it, which they did. And then they got a local uh, 11-year-old uh, child who uh, who was good with a brush. She painted everything except the apostrophe. And then I was given the job of adding it. But clearly it's about more than than just the grammar for you. What is lost if we lost that possessive in St. Mary's Terrace? Oh, well, a little bit of our history and heritage. Uh, I must say the, the old sign, now it's been renovated, it fits in. It blends in perfectly with the actual environment there whereas everybody agreed that the new one just didn't fit in it didn't look right in that particular spot another part of uh the history there jane austen came up Mm. in the debate as well which is a funny part of the story yes well i'll just tell you briefly about that where we live is just outside winchester winchester's where Jane Austen spent much of her life, and in fact, she died there, and she's buried in Winchester Cathedral. But the leader of the council, when he stood up and made his speech in the in, in the council chamber, said uh, that, uh, in actual fact, he'd done some research and found that uh, Jane Austen herself wasn't terribly accurate in her grammar, and and in the original texts that she wrote for her novels. Quite often there were missing apostrophes and even spelling mistakes and things. So, uh, <laughs> so they thought it was okay if the signs missed apostrophes because Jane did. Well, I think yeah, she probably wouldn't even have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> she had other things to do. She had other things to do, Oliver. Uh, the Apostrophe Protection Society, which I have only just learned exists uh, and I'm happy mm, about, mm. has spoken up in favor uh, of of this. Uh, have they invited you to join their ranks? Well, I, I'm thinking about signing up. Um, I, I don't, you know, I've got a lot of things going on in my life, so I don't particularly want to become too uh, obsessed about apostrophes. <laughs> Fair. But uh, yeah, I think I'm going to sign up. We uh, we appreciate this, Oliver. Great to speak with you. <laughs> well, I'm delighted that you're so interested. Oliver Gray is a retired English teacher in the village of Twyford, UK. That's where we reached him. And as always, you delivered. As you may have heard on last night's program, this is an auspicious week in the As It Happens calendar. It was 55 years ago this Saturday, on November 18, 1968, that this show first took to the airwaves. In case you missed it, here's a bit of what that first show sounded like. We're going to roller coaster across the country, talking to you about different stories and ideas, and we hope to be hearing back from you, the listeners, with some of your own ideas and views on the show. 
And we'll be uh, roller coastering, as the phrase, which our producer has coined for this occasion, and the others which we hope will follow it. But the end is five hours away. That's right. So stay with us as it happens. A lot has changed over the past five-plus decades, but at its heart, our format of calling people all over the world and creating a space for them to share their humanity hasn't changed. And as you heard, what really drives this roller coaster every night is you, the listener. Which is why we're asking you to send us some of your favorite memories of the show. Oh, we got some great responses. Scott in Madison, Wisconsin, emailed us to say, quote, When I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, my dad listened to AIH anytime he was in the car. We spent many hours listening together over the years. I remember a specific segment we heard while sitting in the car at the high school parking lot. Neither of us could get out until hearing the full segment. It was loud nose blowing in public. Classic. I will never forget this AIH moment as it became a running joke. He writes that we shared in all the years that followed. Dad taught me to listen to AIH. And though he's gone, I think of him every night when I turn AIH on. I try to listen with my daughter, and I hope she can form some great memories of listening to the show with me. Thank you for 55 years of excellent reporting on critical topics, as well as the Florida Man competition and loud nose blowing. There's something about that being in Florida. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for sharing that special memory, Scott. Rest assured, we'll never stop reporting on loud nose blowing stories. We also heard from a few of you on TalkBack. Hi there, Ruth Vanderstelt from Pontiac, Quebec. You wanted some memories from As It Happens Over the Years. My father was the world's biggest uh, Barbara Frum fan, and uh, he would listen to her no matter what was going on in the world, and he just thought she was the cat's pajamas, and he would stop the car, he would he would be so excited, he would say, Betty, that was my mother's name. And she, he would say, did you hear what she said? Did you hear how she made that question? Did you hear it? Now listen to that. And he was just so impressed with her. He would always talk to other people after the show about what she had said and how she had come across and how she got straight to the point. Anyway, uh, I grew up with CBC. I'm <laughs> growing older with CBC. And uh, it's a huge pleasure uh, to listen to you guys uh, continue on the show. Hey, my name is Denise Julia. And... I am calling from White Rock, British Columbia. 20 years ago or so, I remember listening to National Public Radio, my favorite station in the States, and just being so intrigued to hear as it happened from Canada, learning all about the news there. Uh, I thought it was so exotic and quirky and interesting and very Canadian, I thought. And little would I know that 20 years later, I'd be calling you guys and telling you that I am still a very faithful listener 20 years later, um, now happily living in Canada, who would have guessed that 20 years ago, um, and still appreciating you. So congratulations for all the fantastic reporting and quirkiness that you guys do and are. Bye. Oh, Denise, Ruth, and Scott, thank you. Thank you to everyone who's written in and called. Remember, tomorrow, November 18th, is the big day, so we will keep our phone line and inbox open for you if you want to share any more memories over the weekend. Bonus points if you sing for us. (laughs) (laughs) We'll share some more of your messages on Monday, so call our talkback line at 416-205-5687 and leave a voicemail. You can also send us a voice note or an email to a. I-H at cbc.ca. 
If I were to tell you 300 government and military officials, academic experts, and the like were gathering for a forum on global security today, you'd probably assume its primary focus would be the Hamas attacks of October 7th and Israel's ensuing assault on the Gaza Strip. But while that conflict will undoubtedly be discussed by delegates at the Halifax International Security Forum, it's not the conflict that the forum's president chose to highlight in his opening remarks today. 2023 marks the 15th time we have brought over 300 leaders from more than 75 of the world's democracies to Halifax for what I like to call their annual dose of moral clarity. This year that moral clarity feels more important than ever before. In this violent new era of global conflict that we are experiencing can be directly linked to Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. That's Halifax International Security Forum President Peter Van Prague speaking alongside Canada's Defence Minister Bill Blair at the opening of the government-sponsored forum earlier today. We reached Mr. Van Prague in Halifax. Peter, we'll get to what you said there in just a moment and that phrase, moral clarity. But as you well know, the world is in many ways transfixed on what is happening in Gaza right now, what happened in Israel on October 7th. So why did you decide that that you needed to keep the main focus of this forum on Ukraine? Um, the The way that we see it is a United Nations Security Council member, um, a great power, Russia uh, attacked its smaller neighbor um, last year in 2022. And that really was a game changer because of its status and what it means for the rules-based order, what's called the rules-based order. And so if if that is allowed to stand, then there really are no more rules. And because of what uh, happened in Ukraine, the um, what we're calling the cranks, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, have built closer ties, and what you saw in Israel on October 7th is a direct result of what happened earlier last year with the, with the Russian invasion. And so, yes, we have to deal with what's going on with Hamas in Gaza. That's obviously a major, major story. It's a tragedy all around. Um, but if we don't stop Russia's aggression in Ukraine, we're just going to have more aggression everywhere in the world. David Cameron traveled to Kiev and Odessa on his first trip as the UK's foreign secretary this week. Bill Blair spoke about Ukraine at length during your shared remarks today. So do you think there is really any danger of the world forgetting about this conflict and what Russia is doing? Well, that that, that is Vladimir Putin's goal. Um, but, and so we can't fall into that trap. We've got to stay focused on what the main goal is. The main goal is pushing Russia out of Ukraine, um, helping Ukraine survive as a country, and restoring the rules-based order. You mentioned your concerns about about the risk of a domino effect after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the possibility that Putin's actions emboldened Hamas in this case. Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Israel is responding to those October 7th horrific attacks. Do you think, though, that, that there's a possibility Russia has also emboldened Israel and Benjamin Netanyahu? Um. Benjamin Netanyahu is uh, a democratically elected leader of Israel, and the world has has said that Israel not only has the right to defend itself, but in fact it has the duty to defend itself. Now, what's happening in Gaza is absolutely a tragedy. 
and everybody is watching that, and everybody is urging Israel to abide by the laws of war, and that's fundamentally uh, has to happen. Um, you know, you know, Russia and Iran, um, North Korea and China, the Krinks, they're not going to follow the rules. But it is so important that the democracies follow the rules and don't drag us into into a dark era, which is exactly what they want to do. When in that clip that we heard, you 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 said the the forum is a dose of quote moral clarity. What do you mean by that? You know, the democracies of the world. You know, these are systems of government that are really difficult to run. You know, it's difficult for um, all voices to be heard and to create systems where everybody is represented. But democracy is better. It, it, it is better than the alternative. And I don't think that we need to be afraid to say that. And so there are the good guys and there are the bad guys. And the democracies globally um, are on the side of, of, of good. And that's, and that's what I mean. There are those who, who, as you know, from your conversations, I'm sure, many countries and individuals who feel Israel is already breaking international law. And I wonder if, if, if what you say to those who are concerned about that. I, I think everybody needs to be concerned. Uh, you know, the, the images that are coming out of Gaza, as I said, it's a, it, it, it is a tragedy all around. Um, and, you know, I, I don't believe anybody in Israel is happy when Palestinian civilians are killed. I, I really do believe when Israel says that it is taking great care not to kill civilians, that is that is the case. Mm-hmm. Should even greater care be taken? Probably. But at the same time, Israel has to be able to defend itself. And it's really important to also understand that Israel has more than 200 hostages, and they are being held by Hamas. And and to remember that, um, and um, we, we've had they, conversations too with family members who are still waiting for word. Uh, and on this program this evening, people will hear again from from our guest uh, who survived the attack on her kibbutz. So we're, we're absolutely continuing to cover all of, of those aspects as well. It's a, Neil, it's an absolute tragedy. You know, this is obviously a conference about global security. So in, in terms of what we're seeing in Gaza, are you concerned that it may in the long term undermine Israel's security? Because we've heard, you know, concern that, that this is this is breeding more hatred, potentially uh, radicalization uh, and, and, and a new generation of fighters. Neil, that absolutely has to be a concern. You know, President Biden, uh, when he visited uh, Israel soon after uh, October 7th, he said it very clearly. He said, learn from the mistakes that the United States made after 9-11. Um, and I think it's very important, and I hope that the Israelis do learn from the experiences of others and understand uh, some of the potential dangers of the future as well. On the issue of, of Ukraine, since that is the focus of, of, of the summit, we've seen the Ukrainian counteroffensive against Russia stall. Uh, Zelensky says he fears a winter assault uh, on the country's energy facilities. So what kinds of discussions are you having there about what it will take to shift things, to end that war? It's really important for the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military, and the Ukrainian people to understand that the world is behind them. Um, Ukraine can't win this war in any respect alone. I do think that there were, you know, there were some expectations put on Ukraine that the counteroffensive would would be more successful and that there would be a summer breakthrough. 
And so because those were the high expectations now, yes, there does seem to be some disappointment. But I don't think that disappointment is really fair. Russia is is a much bigger country, a much bigger military, and, and Ukraine has, has done incredible job at incredible sacrifice. And, and the, it's an endurance test for all of us. Peter, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Peter Van Prague is president of the Halifax International Security Forum. We reached him in Halifax. The why is self-explanatory. It's the how that takes a little digging in. As you may know, for a long time now, Colombia has had an enormous problem with a couple hundred enormous invasive creatures. That problem began several decades ago when drug lord Pablo Escobar added a zoo to his estate, a zoo that included hippos, four of which busted out, at which point things got really wild, because those hippos went forth and multiplied a lot. Earlier this month, Colombia announced it would be renewing and expanding a program to deal with the so-called cocaine hippos with a new three-pronged approach. Two of those prongs involve shipping some of the animals abroad and culling some too. And as pointy as that last prong may be, it's definitely not the hardest to pull off. When we first brought you this story last year, we spoke with Carlos Valderrama. He's a wildlife veterinarian in Colombia who had just completed castrating his first wild cocaine hippo. He told Neil how he did it. Carlos, I can I can only imagine how difficult it is to castrate a full-grown hippopotamus in the wild, no less. Where do you even start? Uh, to be honest, it's, 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 it's very complicated. Everything in hippos are difficult because of their size. Here, the problem is that they will run to a river or to a lake as soon as they feel themselves in danger. So um, just only finding them, even even that they are really big animals, is very difficult because mm-hmm. they spend more, most of the day on the water. We managed to put it to, 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 to anesthetize it. Then we have to use a backhoe because you know the another difficulty with these animals okay you manage you are good enough you anesthetize them they are safe they are properly tranquilized now the issue is how you move the an animal of this size without injure the animal or injure somebody and just to go back to to the procedure and how difficult it, it is their testicles are internal right that's part of the reason yes. it's so tough yeah exactly so we spend the whole money only capturing it then put it then into the transportation cage. And now we have to castrate them. And usually that's very simple in any mammal. It just, you know, it's very simple. You have the scrotum, you see the testicles, you just have to do a, a incision and extract the testicles, cut them out, sew them up. And, and, and it's, it's a very quick, safe procedure to be done. Well, with hippos, they have internal testicles. You cannot see them actually. And the problem with them is that that skin is, could be probably five centimeters thick, and then you have a fat tissue that could be eight centimeters thick. So you, you actually prove, have a proper shield, like a, an armor, to protect those testicles. So only to get to that location, we have to spread the animal, manage those legs that each one is, is very heavy, 
position the hippo in a so we can uh, have access to that area and then start opening all that skin and fat tissue in order to get to the testicles and the logistics team is waiting to leave the animal using a helicopter so everything is, is you know it, it seems like a movie but it is like that. it is incredible it certainly sounds incredible and we are all our listeners included getting a very vivid lesson an uh, hippo anatomy lesson today it's it's a day i'm not going to forget carlos uh, i'll tell you that much but in all seriousness you mentioned uh, that they that they can be aggressive as well have they hurt any people yes yes actually they are very territorial you have to understand that unfortunately years ago we have some attacks in actually calves uh seven calves were attacked by one hippo and now we have two individuals that were attacked as well two people by two people yes unfortunately to be honest i think that we have been lucky because but what we know from African experience, they are the animals that kill more people, uh, mammals that kill more people in Africa. So we actually have been kind of lucky that it's only been two attacks. But mm-hmm. as the as the population is spread in the territory, we have a lot of fishermen living in the area. So the more interaction, the more attacks that will happen. And that's what we are trying to prevent. You, you may have mentioned it. I, I may have just missed it there. But the people who were, were injured, they were hurt. No one has been killed by these hippos. Is that right? Oh, yes, yes. They were almost killed. But no, they survived. Oh, my goodness. Time. So, e- unfortunately. Yes. Yeah, even with everything you, you've talked about, this, this decision to go the castration route has been challenging and expensive, as you've described, but also controversial. So why was this yes. the, the course of action uh, that was decided ah. on? One thing that is difficult to understand with this situation is every measure has creates controversy because, you know, if you call them, then you have the, the animal rights activists that are not happy with that decision. Uh, then if you, if you go for only just don't do anything, well, the environmentalists will be not happy with that because it will mm-hmm. create a, a huge impact. Um, for for the environment, and then if you well, if you don't know nothing as well, the local populations that get affected because of the aggressiveness and the attacks of these of these animals. But at the same time, you have the tourist industry that is benefiting from the from from that from that uh, situation. So they, they they will not be happy. Mm-hmm. So basically, we discuss a middle option. Let's do a proper fence. They, they, they let's do. Uh, uh, an enclosed area where they can stay and they will not leave and they will not be a threat to native populations. We started with that, but it's not responsible to have an enclosed population, a confined population, if you don't control the reproduction. Mm-hmm. So how many, have you, how many have you castrated so far? Castrated by surgery in the wild, only one, but at least another 10 has been castrated in the confined spaces. Mm-hmm. So we still have about 20 individuals more that will need to be castrated in the way that I just told you. So that's something that is difficult to do, and we haven't done it yet. Are you hopeful you'll be able to to get it done for all of them? Yes, yes. I'm very hopeful that, 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 that we will get the proper permits, license, and resources to do it because, you know, it's expensive. From October of last year, that was Neil's conversation with Carlos Valderrama, one of the wildlife veterinarians charged with the dangerous, gargantuan task of castrating Colombia's invasive hippos. We reached him in Bogota.
You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also find our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Samira Moyedin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.